Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We turn together to God's Word this morning, and we're looking at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. Now this end of the third chapter that we're looking at this morning will actually bring to a conclusion the first half of Paul's letter. When we come back together again next week, Lord willing, and begin chapter 4, we'll come to a distinct shift to the second half of his letter that's really going to talk about how we ought to live as God's people in light of what God has done for us in Christ. But before we get there next week, this morning, having reviewed God's plan of salvation and all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, giving us this salvation as a gift of grace, and all that God has done through Christ to shape this one new community of God's people, of Jew and Gentile coming together in the church, Paul concludes with a prayer and a praise. And that's what we have in our verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, follow along as we read Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, how we thank you for your word. Would you use it in our hearts? for our good and for your glory this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Here we have Paul's prayer for the church. Now prayer is a fairly familiar routine for most of us, I would guess. We likely pray before bed, before meals, throughout the day. You know, the things we pray for tell us a lot about what's on our minds and what's important to us, don't they? We're just reminded of this years ago, and hearing an elementary student who I think reflected what they'd been learning about and how well they'd been learning it when they prayed very sincerely thanking God for Lancaster's water treatment plant. That was what was on their mind. Now, if you've ever, if you've ever taught children's Sunday school, you've probably taken a lot of prayer requests for cousins' cats and for good vacations. Those are things that are on our minds at that age. And, you know, there's something beautifully childlike in the prayers for anything in life that we as adults should probably imitate. And yet, while we ought to talk to God about every part of life, as we mature in our faith, our prayers should also reflect the things that are most important. And I think that if we reflect, it's often the case that by proportion and emphasis, we tend to spend a lot more time 
praying about things of this world and of this life than we do about spiritual priorities. But when Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 3, his prayer reflects what he believes is most important and what should be most important to us. Because as Paul concludes the first section of his letter to the Ephesians here, he prays for their spiritual growth from the riches of God's glory. And then he praises God for his power to answer that prayer to the praise of his glory. We'll look at each of them, but let's look first at Paul's prayer, which is found in verses 14 to 19. And Paul begins his prayer by stating clearly who he is praying to. You see that there in verse 14. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul makes it clear right away that his prayer and his worship are directed to God, who is the Father, the the originator, the one who has authority over every family in heaven and on earth. Now, you should know there's there's a little bit of a theological dust-up over what exactly every family in heaven and on earth refers to. Some think that it refers to every human group, those who are in heaven already and those who are still on earth, whereas others think that it refers to both heavenly and earthly groups. In other words, Jew and Gentile, but also angels and authorities, every group or family that God has created. And I slightly lean toward the second interpretation myself, but I think Paul's point is clear either way. He is bowing his knee to the God who is the creator of and has authority over every group of people and beings there is. That's who he's praying to. Well, why does Paul pray? Why is he praying here? He starts by saying, for this reason. In other words, there's a reason Paul's about to give this prayer. We need to look back to see what it is. And you'd actually have to flip back to the beginning of the chapter. If you flick back to verse 1 in chapter 3, you'll see that Paul actually started his train of thought there and then got a bit sidetracked. In verse 1, he said, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, that instead of launching into his prayer, talking about the Gentiles reminded him of the mystery of God's plan and of his own role in taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But what Paul had been talking about all throughout chapter 2 and the end of chapter 2 there was about how God had created one new people out of both Jew and Gentile, bringing them both together in the church. And it's for that reason, it's because God has brought different people together in one body in the church that Paul is going to pray for the church. And he picks that reasoning back up here in verse 14. Paul then says that he bows in prayer to God, knowing that God can answer this prayer out of the riches of his glory. See that there at the verse 16, beginning of verse 16. Now, just as a reminder, God's glory is the sum total of all of His attributes. And so the riches of God's glory are the infinite power and wisdom and justice and goodness and truth and beauty of God. And such a God in His infinite character has such riches of His glory is more than able to answer our prayers in the name of Jesus. And so it's to this God who is Father of all, who has the riches of glory, that Paul turns in prayer for the church. But as we look then in verses 16 through 19, we see what Paul actually prays for. What does he pray for the church? And in these verses, Paul prays for three things. 
There are three requests Paul has for the church. And, and these aren't three separate requests. Like, well, I'll pray for this thing over here and this thing over here. They're, they're three requests that are like levels of a pyramid. Each request taking us higher into greater spiritual growth, but each request depending on the one before it. So let's look at each of these. You see Paul's first request there in verses 16 to 19, that the Ephesians might be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Now this first request is our greatest need, and it's also the foundation of every spiritual good that we receive as God's people. Any blessing that we receive comes from Christ dwelling in us by the power of His Spirit. And maybe on the one hand, maybe it seems a little bit unusual that Paul is praying that Christ might dwell in our hearts. After all, he's speaking to believers. Doesn't Christ dwell with every believer? And while the answer is yes, the word that Paul uses here for dwell refers to a permanent, settled ownership in a house. And while Christ dwells with every believer, there is also a sense in which Christ's indwelling presence is something Christians grow in as Christ more fully settles into their heart and rules every part of their lives so that His presence is more thoroughly evident and all-consuming in our lives. Maybe you think about it like moving into a house. We're using terms for dwelling and living here. You know how it is when you first move into a house. It doesn't feel like your house feels like you're still living in someone else's house. Maybe it even smells like the previous owner's house still. And you've got boxes stacked all over it. It doesn't feel like your home yet. But over time, as you settle into your house, you decorate it, you update it, you remodel it so that it reflects your family and who you are. And more and more, you are the owner and the natural and permanent resident of that house and it reflects you. And that's Paul's prayer, that God's Spirit would strengthen us by His power so that more and more Christ might dwell in us as the permanent resident of this heart and of our hearts together as the church so that we reflect Him and He is the permanent owner who settled in our hearts and makes it more and more His. Of course, this is the truth that changes everything for us in life, isn't it? Whether we're facing grief or or suffering or temptation or anxiety, Nothing is the same if we meet it with the Lord of heaven and earth dwelling in our hearts, whose spirit strengthens us with power for his, with his presence. And the one thing that enables us as God's people, individually and corporately, to become more and more like Christ and grow in holiness and maturity as God's people, the one thing that makes that possible is the presence of Christ taking root in our hearts and ruling with greater and greater permanency in our hearts by the power of His Spirit. Now that's an incredible prayer, isn't it? A prayer for the spiritual growth of God's people, but that's, that's just level number one. That's just Paul's first prayer. You see Paul's second level there in verse 17 and 18. Why does Paul pray for Christ to dwell in our hearts? So that being rooted and grounded in love, the Ephesians might have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now Paul begins here by stating that Christians should be rooted in love and grounded in love. That is, our day-to-day lives should have roots in the soil of love. 
And our thoughts and intentions and actions should all be grounded on the foundation of love. Which, of course, is only possible if Christ is dwelling in our hearts by the power of His Spirit. I know myself well enough, I think we all know ourselves well enough, to know that on our own, our lives are not going to be shaped by self-sacrificing love. That comes by Christ dwelling in us by the power of His Spirit. But Paul prays that a striking thing would happen. He prays that as the saints live together and love one another from the Spirit's strength in them, that they would also begin to grow in their knowledge and their understanding of the depth of Christ's love for them. And I think Pastor Alistair Begg puts it well when he says that the love of Christ is discovered corporately. It takes the entire family of God to be able to actually get an inkling of the nature and extent of God's love. We glimpse Christ's love as we sing of that love together, as we affirm it together, as we hear of it in His Word together, as we encourage one another in it, as we see it displayed in one another's lives. How is it that we tangibly get a picture of God's love? It's often through one another. Big says we grow in our appreciation of Christ's love together. And so Paul prays that with all the saints we may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of Christ's surpassing love. And as I was thinking about it this week, I was thinking, you know, we're fairly familiar with the idea of love. We might struggle to understand some of Christ's attributes or God's attributes, but we can be tempted to think we have a pretty good idea of God's love. We know what love is. We know Jesus died on the cross for us, but, but Paul says we actually don't have a very good grasp on the extent of God's love because it is so great that it surpasses knowledge and we need strength to continue to grow in understanding the extent of it. I was thinking of it this way. Imagine that two people, two parents, after years of planning, adopt a little girl into their family. This process of of adoption is an act of great love, and it's a choice to commit their lives to this girl. But on day one of that adoption, how much does that little girl understand of those parents' love? It's only a tiny drop. They're going to spend their lives growing to understand the, the commitment that these parents have made to her. She will see their love for her played out in new ways in the hardships she faces, in in her rebellions against them, in her successes. Maybe as she gets married and has children of her own, she'll understand their love for her in a new way. And so it is that J.I. Packer says that throughout our life in this world and to all eternity beyond, God will be constantly showing us in one way or another more and more of His love and thereby increasing our love to Him continually. Just think, just think about the ways we know Christ's love for you now. If you've put your faith in Him and Christ has set His affection upon you from before you were born, He has sacrificed Himself in taking on a human body and going to the cross to make you His. He has patiently and steadfastly pursued you. He has forgiven you over and over and over. And in all of your failures and turnings from Him, He continues to be committed to you, to making you His bride that you might enjoy intimate fellowship with Him forever. But all of that, what we know of all of that, just scratches the surface of the height and the depth and the breadth and the length 
of the love of Jesus for us. As, as the poet puts it, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It's the depth of Christ's love for us. And again, to know Christ's love for us makes such a difference in every day of our lives. But again, the purpose of Paul's prayer is not only that we would be comforted of Christ's love. There's another level for us to go. There's a third request that Paul prays here. The reason Paul wants the Ephesians to understand more of Christ's love is found in his third prayer request that you see there in verse 19. That the Ephesians may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now here I think we're treading on the verge of glory. The clear meaning of Paul's prayer is that God's people would be filled up to the brim with the very character and attributes of God to the extent that is humanly possible. Peter actually prays for this same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. You remember his words there. He says that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us great and precious promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter's not saying that we become gods. He's saying that God has granted us His power to restore us as images of God, so that together as the church we might share in fellowship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being filled up with His glory and excellence so that we will become holy as He is holy and perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect to reflect His image and glory to the greatest extent possible. That's what God is doing through Jesus Christ in us to the glory of His name. Jim Boyce, the uh, former pastor of 10th Presbyterian, put it this way. He said, we will be filled and filled and filled and filled and so on for all eternity as God, out of His infinite resources, increasingly pours Himself out into those sinful but now redeemed creatures that He has rescued through the work of Christ that we might be filled with the fullness of God. That's what God is working in us. That's what God's people have to look forward to together forever. And that's what Paul prays for, for the Ephesians. That's an incredible prayer, isn't it? That Christ would dwell in our hearts, that being rooted in love, we might know the extent of Christ's love, that more and more we might be filled with the very fullness of God. If I had to guess, I, I doubt that Paul fully understood what this would completely look like when we stand in glory filled with the fullness of God. But as he prays for this, he knows that God can accomplish whatever he sets out to accomplish. And that's why Paul turns from his prayer to a ringing declaration of praise to finish this passage. You see it there in verse 20. Paul declares that God is able to bring about what he has just prayed for. God is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or even think according to the power at work within us. Now, I want you to look at that statement for a minute and, and look at the, the main statement that Paul makes, but then look how Paul expands it to try to give us an idea 
of the extent of Paul's or of God's power. The main statement Paul makes is a fairly straightforward statement. God is able to do what we ask. That's the statement. And that's a profound statement given what Paul has just prayed for. But then note what Paul adds. God is not just able to do what we ask. He is able to do all that we ask. And God is not just able to do all that we ask, but all that we can ask or even think. And God is not just able to do all that we can ask or think, but more than all that we can ask and think. And God is not just able to do more than all we can ask or think. He is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to His power that is at work in us. That's the God that we pray to. And Paul's point is not that God will give us anything we ask for. The point of Paul's prayer is that our prayers are too limited when we focus only on this world's goods. Yes, they are legitimate. We ought to take every thought in prayer to God, every situation in our life to God in prayer. But why would we limit our prayers to praying for cats and and for colds When we can pray for the strength of God's Spirit and the presence of Christ in our hearts and the joy of the knowledge of the depth of the love of Christ and the filling with God's own character. Those are things to pray for. As I was thinking about our typical prayers, I was thinking about maybe an example from the story of the little princess. Some of you may have read the the little princess or, or watched the movie where Sarah's father dies And she's subjected to poverty and cruel treatment in her boarding school at the hands of Miss Minchin. Until her father's business partner, the now wealthy Mr. Carrisford, comes to find her. And I can imagine that upon finding her and bringing Sarah to live with him in all of his wealth, imagine him saying, Sarah, ask for anything and it is yours out of all the wealth that I have. And imagine Sarah responding and saying, well, that's wonderful. Could I, could I have a cup of tea? And you could imagine him saying, well, well yes, but ask for something more. And, and maybe she would say, well, well, could I also have a biscuit? And I imagine Mr. Carrisford saying, Sarah, I don't think you understand. Of course you can have tea. Of course you can have a biscuit. But do you understand what I'm offering you? Anything in the world from the riches of my wealth for your good because of my love for you, will you not delight to ask for something more? And maybe that's just a small picture of what Paul is challenging us with his prayer this morning. Yes, we ought to pray to feel better when we are sick and to thank God for our food, but will we not pray for the spiritual riches of glory that God has offered us in Jesus Christ? That God desires to work in us that we might be filled with the very fullness of God? We've been encouraged that praying Scripture is one of the best ways to pray. I wonder if you would begin to pray this prayer from Ephesians 3. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your kids. Pray it for your grandkids. Pray it for your fellow believers that we might see this come to pass in the life of our church. He is, after all, able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. You know, as I think about God's power, as Christians, I think we're, we're so susceptible to letting cynicism creep into our hearts and lives. And cynicism is the decision not to hope in anything too great just to make sure we're never disappointed. Cynicism is the arrogance to think that we know better than to think that God would really work something great out 
in our lives. It's to be distant and to be emotionally disengaged. But Paul Miller, in that wonderful book, The Praying Life, argues that cynicism is the direct opposite of childlike faith, and it will kill our spiritual life. Our cynicism looks in different ways in our lives. Our cynicism may play out in that we don't take great steps of sacrificial faith. We wouldn't consider missions. We wouldn't give generously. We wouldn't engage in difficult relationships because we wouldn't expect God to bless such risky steps of faith. Far better to just play it safe. Maybe cynicism takes the shape of not looking for real growth and holiness either in ourselves or others, because it's easier just to expect sin to still be here than to pray and work and hope for holiness and still have to face the reality that we won't be perfect in this life. And I can fall into that. I think, well, surely that person wouldn't change. Surely I'm not going to really see significant growth in this area of my life. That's cynicism talking. It's not God's word. See, suspicious that God doesn't really grant answers to big prayers, we can content ourselves with the normal everyday prayers that are easy for him to answer and might have happened anyways. But these are all the hedged bets of cynicism. And the God that we pray to is the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to his power at work in us. Yes, we live in an evil world, so we're not naive optimists thinking that bad things aren't going to happen. Of course not. We know God's ways are higher and better than our ways, so we don't presume that he will answer all our desires with a yes. Of course not. But we do believe God's goodness and God's power. We do believe that God is actively at work in his church for his glory. And so we commit our whole selves, our whole minds and hearts to pray and to work and to give and hope with expectation to see how God will answer beyond what we could imagine. In this life, yes, and in the life to come. That's who God is. That's who we pray to. Well, let's conclude by looking back at the text with our last verse, verse 21. Paul ends all of this as he prays for the spiritual growth of the church and as he remembers who God is and all of his power to answer prayer. He ends on a last note of praise. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. See, Paul's concluding desire is that as God answers his prayer, God himself would receive the glory. Specifically, Paul prays that God's glory would be seen in the church and in Jesus Christ. Well, how does that, how does that happen? Well, remember that God's glory is the visible expression of his character. And Paul is praying that all of God's attributes would come to living expression in the church the gathering of God's saints as they are perfected and sanctified so that the body of God's people and its head, Jesus Christ, together the bride and the groom, beginning now but to all eternity, would be the demonstration of the glory of God, would be where God's glory is seen. That's God's great purpose, to call His people and sanctify them and work in them so that for all eternity we would dwell with Him and display His glory. In the end, of course, this all comes back to the character of God and what He has done for us in Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer is an invitation to us to come to God and pray for big things. Not big houses and big vacations, bigger things than that. 
Spiritual growth. As Alistair Begg put it, he said, our small prayers betray a suspicion that we have a small God. We don't. We have a God who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can even imagine. And he's already demonstrated that by sending his own son, Jesus, to live and die in our place and rise again with an offer of salvation to any who will put their trust in him. And he's doing it right now by calling and perfecting his people so that in the church and in Christ Jesus, his glory will be seen and magnified and praised forever and ever. And so would we pray together as a church that Christ might dwell in us by the Spirit's power, that we might know the extent of Christ's surpassing love, that we might be filled with the fullness of God, to the glory of God in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this passage of Scripture that you've given us. And how we thank you for Jesus Christ who has come to die in our place and rise again. That we might be united to him and find salvation in him. And how we thank you that your plan and purpose, God, was not just to pluck us out of our sin to save us. It was, it was to work in us that Christ might dwell in our hearts by the Spirit's power, that we might know the surpassing love of Jesus Christ, that we might be filled with the fullness of God, that in the church and in Jesus Christ, your glory might be seen now and forever. Father, would you be working this in us? Would you be giving us this spiritual growth? Would this be our desire? Would this be the thing that is most important to us? That you might be praised. We pray this In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry the Westminster Pulpit.